0: I am the king of the region. I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I think too much. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 126. 126. I am your host, Matthew PM Bigelow.com. And this is the podcast coming at you from the Arm- Arm- Asia. Asia. In the Toshihisa-cho studios in shinjuku Tokyo, Japan. This is, of course, the Japan What Podcast, covering AI trends, uh, Asia conflict, Indo-Pacific news, some news analysis in there, odd items, and you get it. That's what we do here. I am back in Japan after spending a total of seven weeks in Canada. Glad to be back. Uh, we're kicking it off here. I do I- I'd done a few podcasts, but uh, it was, it was, it was rough. I didn't have a studio. I had my, my go studio, my, my to go studio. And after a while I just gave up and enjoyed myself. Had a good old trip to Canada, came back after, um, after those, a plane had been a plane accident had occurred at, at Haneda airport at the beginning of the year where, um, a, a coast guard plane from Japan was, prepping to go out and help some people who had been, uh, you know, stranded in an earthquake in the Noto Peninsula and a miscommunication happened with the control tower, I'm assuming. And then, um, uh, an airliner, this passenger airliner came in, smashed right into it, killed a bunch of the people in the coast guard. Everybody else in the passenger plane got out. Maybe you've, you heard about this. This was pretty big news. Um, and as I was flying back to Haneda, we managed to land a uh, part of the runway where you have to take a shuttle bus back into the main airport. And as we were driving across the uh, the tarmacs there, uh, you know, there's, there's suddenly you notice all the signs of like, hey, there's planes coming and going here. Be careful. I'm like, oh God, I hope this bus driver is uh, competent enough to get us back to the airport safe. Unfortunately, we all died. Nah, it's okay, but. Just um just a whole lot of panic, but here we are in the new year 2024. things are just getting weirder and weirder and uh, that's the way it's got to be. How else how else would you like it? Do you want to live in normy world or will you live in interesting times? We got a busy show today. We're always very busy and um I don't know uh, what are your predictions for this year? is your economy going to go up are you going to invest in the stock market are you going to go out and um and grab life by the horns and wrestle that bull to the floor and say i have a resolution and i'm sticking with it i don't know this is going to be a busy ass year for me though we'll see how it goes but looking at um uh, looking at uh, at this uh, at these trends were all strapped into in our global economy. Eh, the wild ride has just begun. It's like when you get to the top of a mountain, you're like, ah, finally, the top of the mountain. I will finally be able to go to the bottom of this mountain and get to the other side to safety. But you get to the top of the mountain and you crest that mountain and you just see an endless sea of mountains in front of you. Each one higher than the one that precedes it with rockier, rockier outcroppings, snowiness. There's like um, weird animals flying over one of them. And that's the one you got to go to. And that's that's 2024 so far. Let's kick it off with uh, some news. This is, of course, the podcast covering those trends, AI markets, some Indo-Pacific, Asia conflict and more. Uh, uh, Oh, what I want to say is just to kick this off. Um, there's a, uh, the world economic forum, which I track on this podcast uh, is being, uh, is holding its annual Davos summit right now. And maybe you've been following it. Maybe you haven't, but I, I started following it because when my, my previous job, which is like four years ago now, cause COVID is four years ago. I lost it amid COVID. Um, I was working at a telecommunications company as a AI teacher of all things. And, um, previously before all the weird COVID wackiness started, I'd always gone to the Davos meetings, websites and, and, you know, talks and stuff like that because of their interest in AI and AI markets and how different countries were handling AI. And this is like 2017, 18, 19. Um, and, and so I've been following it for that long and then it just got really creepy, but the um, digital minister of Japan, uh, Taro Kono, who was previously a foreign minister and ran for uh, prime minister against Kishida, um, he was there with the CEO, I believe, of Sumitomo. And I listened to the whole thing. I'm going to be putting an excerpt of that at the end because it's like one of these um, panel talks where people kind of give really long answers. But he, Taro Kono mentions a few things, like he mentions data free flow with trust. And I've covered that on the podcast before. And that was an initiative, an initiative or an idea stemming from Shinzo Abe to create like minded uh, countries uh, sharing information with each other. And it's called DFFT, Data Free Flow with Trust. And then the um, World Economic Forum's um, subsidiary, I guess we could call it, the Center for the Fourth Industrial Revolution of Japan, um, uh, at one of the latest G7 summits in, in Hiroshima. They were also pushing data free flow with trust um, from their World Economic Forum side to the government side at a, one of those private public partnership meetings, which uh, Taro uh, Kono was um, atten- attending. There, there was also a robot of him there, a stupid goofy robot. And at this World Economic Forum uh, meeting, that's just t- that has just taken place, they mentioned data free flow with trust there as well. They also use other key vocabulary such as stakeholders and. Um, uh, decarbonization and stuff like that. I'm going to put an excerpt of it. It's going to be them Taro Mr. Taro the, the Minister, minister Taro Kono, I guess I should say, and the CEO of Sumitomo responding at the beginning to their ideas of what is happening in the world. So that'll be at the very end, and I'll link to the um, X post from the World Economic Forum if you want to check it out. I, I listened to it as I was, um, you know, mucking about the the apartment this morning. Um, getting ready and just had it on in the background. And it's not exactly the most entertaining of things, but the way that they're talking about it and using the vocabulary kind of makes me think that these are just a bunch of talkers, not a bunch of doers and that we're living in a world where we're at the, at the behest of a bunch of wafflers and not actually a bunch of doers where they just kind of say a bunch of stuff, but it never goes anywhere because it's non-tactile. And I've covered this before where countries like Russia, China, um, are actually doing stuff. You can disagree with it hundred percent, but obviously they're doing things. Uh, but we're always trapped with these people who like just to waffle on and on and on about these things that have very complex systems behind them that are very hard to implement. So you just kind of end up I guess they just want all the money and then the more complex they make it, the more money they get and then nothing happens, but they get the money. I'm, I'm wondering if that's kind of the end solution here or the end result, whether it's intentional or not. But if you just got a whole bunch of money for talking about the same thing over and over and again, you might believe that you're in a position of success and that you're actually moving towards something, but maybe not. Anyways, I'm going to stop that, that comment there And it will be attached at the end of this podcast. So if this podcast initially you look at, it it seems a lot, very long, a quite substantial portion of that is just going to be these guys that waffling away at Davos. And if you're interested in Japan, the economy, these are like the digital minister and the CEO of Sumitomo. I believe it's Sumitomo. I just, it's off the dome right now, talking about what their visions of the future is. And it it does trickle down, whether it's successful or not. It does trickle down. Down, so uh, all right. Well, let's let's kick off the podcast for real here. The, where's my stupid talk topic list? Japan's biggest ham company is making tuna, quote unquote tuna that contains neither ham nor fish. Okay, so that's 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 a World Economic Forum talking point right there. You can't have farms. They're talking about ecocide. side. We got to get rid of the cow farts. All of that. So this comes to us from Sora News 24, the hate read of the week. And I think Casey Basile has been on this uh, podcast featured more and more, but uh, this one is doesn't get, get to get as cringy as they, as they typically do and take that for what it's worth. Nippon Ham is getting ready to debut a new tuna sashimi alternative. Nippon's ham is pretty self-explanatory. Nippon means Japan and ham means ham. Um, but the company hauls a bunch of other things, including frozen pizza and Chinese dishes. And now Nippon Ham is getting set to enter a whole new field by selling, in quotes, tuna sashimi. Now, you might be skeptical about how much company with such a meaty history knows about making good sashimi. Actually, though, that's sort of a moot point because Nippon Ham's sashimi isn't made out of fish or ham. It's made out of plants. You're either guessing bugs or plants. Uh, seen in the video above, I'll be linking the video. It looks disgusting. It looks like um, foam sashimi, like like some sort of product you'd get at the hundred yen shop and put on display and be like, "That's not real sashimi. That's a foam sashimi." And everyone's okay. You have foam sashimi. Plant-based sashimi is likely to be a more difficult sell, however. Sashimi is eaten raw, usually followed by a modest dip into soy sauce and wasabi, which means that the flavor and mouthfeel inherent to the fish itself are more distinctly felt than they are with a dried fish fillet. As such, Twitter reactions to Nippon hams, plant-based tuna sashimi have been mixed, with some seemingly uh, cautiously optimistic and others seeing this as a dystopian dining development. Oh, that's good writing, Casey dystopian dining development. Um, And it goes on from there. So if you want to see some of the uh, pictures of (laughs) the of his YouTube video, head on over to the official website for the Japan What Podcast app, MatthewPMBigelow.com. All of the links, photos, ideas for support are right there waiting for you. And you can send us some traffic. And if you're like, this guy is a crazy conspiracy theorist, weirdo, the blah, 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 blah. Well, it's, it's all linked there. And my analysis doesn't get too far into the bushes these days. I mean, sometimes it can, if you want to have some fun with it. But if you have a war on fun, this podcast ain't for you. Ah, life is just nuts. Let's take a look at, um, Japan. Um, here's the, uh... Elon Musk's Starlink helps communications in quake hit central Japan. Um, Japan suffered a major earthquake at the beginning of the year. Maybe you remember it. Maybe you don't. I haven't covered it, but this is just, uh, how I remember when the uh, Fukushima earthquake happened and all of the phone lines were down. I couldn't contact anybody. My cell was down, lineups at all the um, at the public telephones. It was 2012, so there was still a lot of that back then in Japan. There still is. But um, the, the key thing that I was using at the time to communicate with everybody around the world about my situation, because everybody was so freaked out after watching CNN, they're like, Matt you're in the middle of a nuclear Holocaust earthquake, get out. And I could just take a picture, show them on my Facebook account, which I could access via my mobile phone uh, through the network or through Wi-Fi and say, listen, it's bad, but it's not that bad. There's no turned over buildings or where I was, it was fine. Um, and so this, this layering of technology helps people communicate with their families and loved ones as it improves. And that's what's happening right now in Kanazawa, Japan. Rescue workers and residents in the disaster hit Noto Peninsula, which, by the way, is one of the most beautiful parts of Japan, uh, are increasingly turning to Elon Musk's Starlink Satellite Internet Service as the magnitude 7.6 earthquake that struck on New Year's Day damaged communications infrastructure and services remain disrupted. Uh, It's a very isolated place. It's, It's like there's two roads in two roads out um, not so densely populated and, and and it's it's not the easiest place to be in when um, is Nat hits the anfa Japanese telecommunication operator KDDI Corp I never worked there which offers in the country the Starlink service run by SpaceX um, has offered 550 Starlink routers or routers to shelters, government offices, and disaster medical assistance teams operating in the areas. At, the, at a fire department in Wajima, Ishikawa Prefecture, one of the hardest hit areas, 300 firefighters started using the service for their rescue operations. Quote, It really helps because we can now know what other rescue workers are up to and what the central government is trying to do. End quote. One of the firefighters said, the Starlink service also became available to 350 evacuees at an elementary school in Suzu Ishikawa. Quote, I can now collect necessary information smoothly, such as weather data, said Juichi Iseki 63, one of the evacue- evacuees. Um, messaging apps uh, are fast. Starlink was introduced in Japan in December 2022, and it uh, goes on from there. But the Starlink is uh, beneficial because you don't, you just put it on the ground and it starts receiving signals. I'm not sure about the power um, service, uh, but uh, anyways, you just, you plug it in and you go and you're ready. It's like a satellite phone. Basically, if you can see the sky, you can talk on your satellite phone, your sat phone. Um, And that's, that's what's going on there. So I don't see why so many people hate Elon Musk. I mean, I was, I would just talk for a long time about, those the digital minister and uh, the data free flow with trust and all these giant great ideas, but when it comes to um, the Isnat hitting the Anfa, uh, we get Starlink products that you put on the ground and now people can communicate with each other. One of the one of my students at the telecommunications companies that I, the telecommunication company that I work at worked at, uh, he when the Fukushima earthquake happened, he put basically a satellite system. He was a, like a, one of the top engineers of the company. He put like a, a whole communications network together in a truck or a van, and he drove it up there himself into the disaster hit area. And then he, um, you know, made it known to local people that he had communications set up and people could go to him to connect to the wireless communications uh, on his, uh, that he just whipped up together and, and contact their family members to let them know that they were safe. So, in my guy, in my opinion, that guy's a hero. And also, in my opinion, having um, access to this technology, where it it's not like, oh, it'll be there in two and a half months. It's like, boom, here it is. It's on the ground. It's working. And now it's you have a you have a calm system set up where there was none before because it was destroyed by a, a major earthquake. Um, I think this is like a a major win for. Uh, this type of, of technology, because we can always like think about this d- dystopian nightmare or the dystopian dinner ding thing that uh, Casey Basile was talking about with the sashimi tuna. Uh, but when you have just infrastructure in place and it's working as infrastructure, it works. And I'll be linking a photo on that to the website, Matthew, P and uh Next, Japan probe lands on moon in precision touchdown mission. Uh, this is, of course, a major win for Japan. Their, uh, the JAXA, Japan's Aeronautical Exploration Agency, has had a lot of failures with their major um, satellite launches and launches in general, getting some rockets up. They launch, but they don't do what they're supposed to. The garbage satellites are supposed to be collecting orbital uh, garbage, but the satellite doesn't work and so finally, they managed to land this like little toy thing on the moon. Uh, and I'll just read a little bit. This comes to us from Kyoto News on the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. Tokyo. A Japanese spacecraft equipped with precision navigation technology has successfully landed on the moon. But the fate of its mission is uncertain due to problems with its solar power generation system, the country's space agency said Saturday. With the touchdown of the smart lander for investigating moon, or SLIM, Japan has made its first lunar landing, joining the former Soviet Union, the United States, China, and India as the only countries to have accomplished the feat. Weird how Japan is like Mr. Technology of the world, but, you know, Soviet Union, the U.S., China, India, and now Japan, or now on the moon, if you believe it. If you believe it. I have my issues. Believe me. I'm one of those guys who's like moon landing never happened oh the moon landing happened what would well, the moon landing couldn't have happened because ah, well the moon landing you know I kind of go back and forth on the on the conspiracy theory of the moon landing part, part of me believes that uh, the reason why I go back and forth is because maybe they did go in the United States but they didn't want to reveal their secret technology to the Soviet Union so that they they kind of had a mixture of sets that, to protect their technology that was filmed by, um, uh, that guy, who's that guy, uh, uh, sh- 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 uh, Eyes Wide Shut Director, Eyes Wide Shut Director, um, directed by Stanley Kubrick. woo I can't believe I forgot that. He used to be a huge film buff. Um, and you know, he got some interesting technology from NASA to film future movies, all that stuff, but that's neither here nor there. Um, JAXA officials said they suspect the built-in power generation system was not properly facing the sun and could begin to function once sunlight conditions change. The spacecraft is designed to technology for conducting pinpoint landings on the surface of gravitational bodies with unprecedented precision of less than 100 meters from intended targets, as opposed to previous moon landers that have an accuracy with, uh, within several to around a dozen kilometers, according to JAXA. So as um as, as humans... Uh, begin these ideas to create moon bases. Um, If you're going to add additions onto the moon base and these robots have very limited mobility, you need to have them uh, land very precisely in order to make moon bases in a timely fashion. That's, that's my crazy idea. I mean, like the previous crazy idea was Stanley Kubrick. You can take that or leave it. I don't really care, but if we are building moon bases and China is apparently building a moon base on the far side of the moon, um, If that competition is ramping up and the mobility of these robots is quite uh, dodgy at best, having it precisely landed precisely as possible would be an incentive to um, make such landings uh, a major focus for people. Anyways, I'll be taking some photos of the lunar lander and you can check it out on the website, matthewpmbiglow.com. Next. I can't believe I forgot that. Okay. Now, this one will connect to the final uh, thing from the WEF, from Mr. Taro Kono, the digital minister. And they're at at the World Davos Summit, and they're like, oh, the economy in Japan is getting better. You know, you have more inflation and price for wages is going up, and you have more investment, and the stock market is doing very well. So we see Japan is turning back to a positive arc and making real effort. And they're like, yes, our economy is doing great. Well, how about this headline for you today from today.com Japan bankruptcies surge in 2023, topping 8,000. Uh, this is, of course, perhaps the war on the middle class where you have the consolidation of major, major corporations um, operating willy-nilly and the... The mom-and-pop shops that got all these free loans, you know, now have to pay them back, but they never recovered because everybody left the industries or went on their merry ways to live their lives elsewhere, and now they're getting the shaft. The number of corporate bankruptcies in Japan surged in 2023, topping 8,000 for the first time in four years as a rise in the price of materials and wage increases hurt corporate earnings, credit research said Monday. Uh, business failures with debts of at least 10 million yen. That would be $100,000 or uh, wow, maybe a lot less now because I can't convert it that way anymore because the low yen jumped. So uh, businesses failures with debts of at least 10 million yen jumped 35.2% from a year earlier to 8,690 for the second consecutive yearly rise, Tokyo Shoko Research said. Increases in labor costs due to workforce shortages, particularly in the construction industry, and surges in the prices of raw materials and energy dealt a blow to companies, some of which were already burdened by the repayment of loans provided under the government pandemic relief program. All 10 industries covered in the survey saw an increase in bankruptcies with the service sector logging the most at 2,940, at 40 up 41.7%. The construction industry came in second with 1,693, up 41.8% total liabilities left by bankrupt companies rose 3.1% to 2.4 trillion yen led by Panasonic liquid crystal display Co., which applied for liquidation, (laughs) liquid crystal display applied for liquidation in September, 2023 with debts of 583.6 billion yen. It said, so, um, those are some major corporations. Of course, the eateries took a big hit and they've never recovered. Uh, I've talked about it before going out after the pandemic, the food industry is just not what it used to be. A lot of people left. The people that came in were maybe not that good. They're there now and the food's worse on average. They might be kind of coming back maybe, but uh, I don't see it with the population kind of going way down and people choosing alternative lifestyles. uh, Basically, you get uh, Vietnamese people off the boat making your ramen now, and it's probably just as good as the people making it in Canada. Not very. All right, let's jump into Japan Society 5.0.
1: The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The Fourth Industrial Revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, Free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. AI and robots will enhance human ability.
0: All right, so explaining it every time, as usual, that is the Japanese government's uh, jingle promotional video from YouTube. About their vision for Japan society 5.0, launched in 2017, to do like drone and medicine and AI and everything. It's since been absorbed by the business lobby of Japan, the K Ren, into a SDG DEI initiative, and now it's um I don't know I don't know what it what it what it is going to be, but it's being sucked into the nether regions of inoperability disguised as interoperability. How do we make these things interoperate? They can't. Well, let's try. We can't do it. (laughs) Davos 2024, Japanese Monetary Authority to Adopt India's Digital Payment Models, says uh, Ashwini Vaishna. This comes to us from moneycontrol.com. The reason I'm including it is because Japan's main uh, payment app, PayPay, it uses Paytm technology. Paytm technology was developed, I think, purchased by India from China. And then India, as well as developing a, a massive publicly uh, funded database for uh, digital payments or digital lifestyle and all that. And Japan's trying to get on it too. And so there's like this connection between um, Japan's Successful payment apps being based on Indian technology and Japan and India uh, really bolstering ties in the past few years. You see that with uh, initiatives like the Quad um, and maybe like uh, India perhaps taking a page from Japan's uh, notebook or notebook or a playbook and, and and kind of playing their own game. Like we need to survive and we're going to operate in the world as an international Um, country, but we also need to think about ourselves. So it's like this uh, selfish integration. Uh, The Japanese Money Authority, along with a few large banks in the world, will be implementing a digital payment stack model adopted by India, which includes the unified payments interface launched by the National Payments Corporation in India, said Union Minister um, Ashwini Vaishna on January 18th. Speaking to money control on the sidelines of the World Economic Forum in Davos, Minister for Electronics and Information Technology Vaisha said that Japan's Digital Transformation Minister, Konotaro, met and shared the progress. Quote, two of the largest banks in the world have decided to go forward on that. The Japanese Money Authority, as well as many European countries, are looking at this stack as the solution for their countries and also for cross-border payments, the minister said. During the G7 summit, Japan announced that it would send a team to study India's UPI payment mode to link the systems. Eventually, India and Japan got into a memorandum of understanding to adopt the digital payment models. I'm going to stop it there. Just um, So I'm saying like it can't go forward, but it is going forward. But is it going forward? Uh, the second largest telecom subscribers in the world with the second largest 5g ecosystem. That's just on the poster behind one of these um, Indian ministers there. So uh, interesting to see them um, perhaps adopt some systems, but what do we need these cross border payments for? Don't we already have them? Don't they already exist? So I'm not sure what they're necessary for next Amazon to invest 2 trillion yen in Japan's cloud business amid AI boom. I don't think we need to read too much into that. Um, Tokyo from Kyoto coming to us from the Mainichi again. Amazon.com Inc.'s cloud computer service, cloud computing service, said Friday it will invest about 13.5 billion yen, or sorry, 13.5 billion dollars, or two trillion yen, in Japan to strengthen its cloud infrastructure by 2027 in an effort to cope with growing demand on the back of generative artificial intelligence booms. The funds will be used to expand the capabilities of its two data centers in the country, located in Tokyo and Osaka, the Japan unit of Amazon Web Services, Inc. said. The new plan is in addition to the $1.51 yen invested in Japan between 2011 and 2022. The move comes as momentum to utilize generative AI is growing among Japanese companies following the explosive popularity of ChatGPT. Among the country's tech firms, NEC Corp rolled out a generative AI platform for corporate customers in July last year, while NTT Telephone Corp said it will launch a business-use generative AI platform in March. Amazon has also launched Amazon Q, an AI service for corporate clients that can summarize texts and offer business advice utilizing their internal data. These are quite old technologies, but they're being rolled out to um, sort of the mid-level corporations right now. I remember this some um, Australian company trying to provide a similar service to a Chinese businessman. I can't remember what this comp- what this Chinese businessman what his business focus was. So let's just say it's like um, uh, shopping carts. Like he's a shopping cart producer, and there's a shopping cart there's a, a, a supermarket boom going on around the world in regional areas, and he wanted to know about the orders worldwide of shopping carts but he didn't want to slog through all the data and all the reports and things like this. So this Australian company put together a stack where it looks at all the shopping cart data and all the orders and where it's being ordered and how much money is being spent. And like on a weekly basis, it takes all of that data, compresses it down to one paragraph, and it emails the Chinese businessman that data. And so he can look at one paragraph of a week's worth of compressed data that's been collaborated by these, you know, AI search tools via automation, um, keyword searches and production orders and stuff like that. It wasn't shopping carts by the way, but something like something benign that's everywhere. And that, that was that person's investment into AI and like his business went kaboom, it went bonkers. Um, and so now, you know, but you have to, you have to, you can't just copy and paste the shopping cart data for somebody who wants to make thingamajims and diggly uh, in other fields. So I guess these companies are making uh, larger and larger models that they can distribute to people via the cloud. Mm, Pretty interesting stuff. Um, Next, robots key to new ways of farming as labor shortage looms. I've been covering agriculture as well. Now, a lot of these companies um, that are doing the uh, agricultural robotics are very different from what the government is doing with their data, free flow with trust, and all of that. These are the more the movers and the shakers. They see an issue, uh, lack of labor. They, they disagree with the idea of bringing in uh, unprecedented amounts of migrants to wander around the fields of Japan and hopefully maintain the level of professionalism that the Japanese have, which is impossible because only the Japanese could do it. Uh, um, and so they say, well, why don't we try to you know, incorporate our professionalism into the robotics field and using AI cameras uh, and some robots that have very soft fingers on them. They can be powered by air on the inside. And then when it hits a, Certain threshold that it's grabbing something, it will stop filling it with air, therefore not damaging the, the product. So you can handle strawberries or, or, or pears or whatever it is. Robots key to new ways of farming. Um, with Japan facing a significant labor shortage on the horizon. Oh, wait, this is coming to us from the Asahi Shimbam. Uh, including agricultural and manufacturing sectors are, help, are hoping robots will be a high-tech game changer. Some robots are already turning up in unexpected places, including a bell pepper farm in Shintomi Miyazaki Prefecture on the main southern island of Kyushu. The farm is run by Agrist, a startup company using advanced technology in place of human workers. Uh, I may have covered these people before, but what we're going to see more and more is uh, news about robots in the fields. More and more. That's definitely happening. It's called the L-Robot Harvests Bell Peppers. The robot's artificial intelligence was trained to recognize fruit ripe for harvesting by being shown about 30,000 images of ripe bell peppers. The robot glides between the rows of plants on wires near the ceiling of a vinyl house or a greenhouse. When its two cameras detect a ripe pepper, a robot arm extends to cut the fruit and place it in a cart. It takes the robot about a minute to harvest one bell pepper, much slower than a human worker, but its strength relies on the ability to work continuously without breaks. However, each robot costs about $13,000 to $20,000. After the robot was installed two years ago, the harvest from the vinyl house was about 1.4 times greater than the Miyazaki Prefecture average. Quote, Doesn't suddenly take a day off and there's no need to set up a work schedule for the robots, said Hiroki Hata, 30, chief technology officer for Agrist. The robot is easy to rely on as a labor force. Yeah, so you can work faster, but you can't work as long. This is like uh, uh, that uh, Paul Bunyan or whatever, Paul Bunyan with his ox uh, fighting against the uh, chainsaw, you know, they lose even though they're better. The company never intended to have the robots supplement human workers, but rather designed the farm to be sustainable with only one robot labor from the start. Uh, with only robot labor from the start. Agricultural faces a bleak labor shortage. According to the Farm Ministry, while there were about 1.23 million farm workers in 2022, that figure is estimated to fall to about one-fourth that level in the next two decades. Uh, left as it is, Japanese agriculture will come to an end, as hata said people will starve if an unexpected situation such as a war occurred. Another farm in Tsu, Mian Prefecture also uses robots to harvest tomatoes. It goes on. and there's a variety of robotic companies getting involved. Again, I am taking pictures of these companies. This article is pretty long, so we're going to leave it as is uh, for here. but I just think that this is like the there's the two sides that I keep mentioning about society 5.0. There's the digital ministers who go, we need data free flow with trust, and we need SDGs for the next society, and we need to end poverty and by 2030, and we're on the decarbonization path, and blah, 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 blah. Uh, but meanwhile, um, just teams of young people who understand robotics and AI slap these things together, test it, release it, and put it into the market, and it's working, so... I'm pretty sure that the politicians will eventually take credit for all of these uh, young people's hard work. Yokohama Library System introduces AI, uh, Japan's first AI book search. Um, Searching for books is never easy. Uh, Yokohama. This comes to us from the Mainichi as well. Aiming to offer new discoveries for book lovers, the Municipal Library System uh, in Yokohama on January 15th unveiled an AI-powered search service that suggests items when users enter a word or a sentence. According to the Municipal Education Board, there are a total of approximately 4.09 million books and 18 Yokohama City Library collections. Of these... AI has learned the bibliographic information of around 740,000 books whose contents are registered in Japan with 50 or more characters. Conventional searches could not reach a book in the library unless the title, author, or keywords matched the bibliographic information. For example, searching for a book to cheer me up when I am sad would not have shown any results in the past, but the new service will display books the AI considers relevant. Conventional search results will also come up the new system also incorporates a quote digital library card that allows users to borrow books via smartphone and a web bookshelf function that displays search for and related books as if they were on the bookshelf. Fujitsu Japan limited and Aoyama Gakuin university. Oh, okay. I used to teach some people from there, developed the AI based service and spent about $5.5 million or 800 million yen to install and operate a series of systems in municipal libraries and goes on from there. Uh, yeah. So again, very practical. Um, I'm not sure if I would ever use it though. Tokyo bakery NEC team up to give rise to AI based love bread. That should be the, the title here. A Tokyo based, a Tokyo based baked goods company and technology electronics giant NEC corp have, Oh, NEC, by the way, has some of the most advanced image recognition um, software in the world have come together to produce love bread with flavors based on AI powered by analysis of customers' romantic feelings. (sighs) I'm not sure if this is good. Uh, Kimuraya Shohonten was established 155 years ago and sells bread and other baked goods within department stores, supermarkets, and other locations. Working with NEC, which already has experience creating food products with the help of AI, the bakery aims to tackle the challenge of attracting younger customers. Using AI, the electronics giant analyzed the Japanese lyrics of about 1 million songs in the dialogue between high school students uh, on a hit reality show on the Abema streaming platform. To create a list of the top 50 foods expressing romantic feelings, Kimoia Baker's experience in producing many kinds of steamed bread products then selected food items that go well together, resulting in the Ren AI Pan, uh, AI Romance Bread. That creates the flavor of romantic feelings, ranging from first dates to heartbreak. The confections, coming in five varieties, including apple-scented fateful encounters and cider-like tearful goodbyes, will be available in sequence at Kimodia's bakeries, Kanto region supermarkets, in East Japan, and via its online store for Feb first to April first. Again, that's 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 obviously marketing gimmicky. And then finally, um, this one's actually pretty big. Um, there's, I'm not sure if you know these, these, these solar wings that are like hundred feet wide, they fly around in the stratosphere. And the idea is they can beam telecommunication, like data down to on uh, a footprint on the earth. And it's like this, just like these giant robots in the stratosphere, beaming internet down to earth. That's uh, called HAPS, high altitude platform service I think it's called additionally bought by uh, Facebook and then Google bought it but then the company I was working for SoftBank purchased the technology and some of the students I was working with ended up on this project and they were trying to find ways to test the um, these giant wings and I don't think I'm going to be stepping on anyone's toes here but you know, how do you get these things in the air was a giant problem that they had because they're not an airport; they're a telecommunications company. So suddenly, these engineers now have to phone airports and be like, "Can we use your runway to launch giant wings into the sky?" You know, and like, how do we? They come to be like, "How do we negotiate this?" I'm like, "I don't know. Come on, I don't know how to negotiate giant wings in the sky with airports. Give me a break." But I tried my best. I tried my best. Uh, An international agreement has been reached on new frequency bands proposed by Japan for use in high-altitude platform stations, Um, an an emerging technology that aims to provide expanded mobile coverage to areas lacking connectivity. The technology, also known as HAPS, refers to systems where unmanned aircraft flying in the stratosphere can be operated like uh, telecom base stations. The identification of new spectrum resources is expected to provide tailwinds (laughs) for Japanese companies involved in the development of HAPS with the updated regulations to come into effect from 2025. Yeah, that's not going to make the um, upper management at SoftBank happy. They were, I think they wanted it a lot earlier. Base stations operating in the stratosphere can emit radio waves from an altitude of around 20 kilometers, enabling HAPS to provide greater telecommunications connectivity and coverage from ground-based stations. Um, let's just see where it goes. Doo, 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 doo. Uh, in September, Japanese mobile phone carrier SoftBank Corp successfully tested its HAPS unmanned aircraft in the stratosphere, developing delivering sorry 5G connectivity to Rwanda. So they managed to find a place to test in Africa, Nippon Telegraph Telephone Corp or NTT uh, has been to actively researching and developing the platform, collaborating with broadcasting companies Skyperfect, Perfect, JSat Corp, among others. So, good for you, SoftBank, for uh, getting on ahead of this and uh, being a, a little bit of a risk taker in, in in this next wave of technology. Uh, you know, you can hire me again. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind. I mean, I mean, what I'll say is. I definitely know how to negotiate with airports now. Perhaps. (laughs) Um, All right. And that's going to be it for Japan Society 5.0 for today.
1: The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0 a technology-based, human-centered society. The Fourth Industrial Revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving, allowing us to safely visit anyone, anytime. We will have access to the latest medical advancements at a low cost, no matter where we are. AI and robots will enhance human ability and expand our infinite possibilities, helping us enjoy more fulfilling lives. Society 5.0. For the betterment of human...
0: Have you considered donating to the Japan Web Podcast? course you have but have you you haven't have you why not make a donation we offer you paypal at paypal.me forward slash japan wut that's paypal.me forward slash japan wut or just go to the website matthewpmbigalow.com send us some traffic oh subscribe on your podcast apps that really helps too Uh, We are also part of the podcasting 2.0 infrastructure. What that is, it's a bevy of new apps that use open source protocols that are sensor proof. With the consolidation of the podcasting world into giant tech companies like Spotify, YouTube, Google, they can willy nilly choose and eliminate any podcast they want. But... Nary is the day that that can happen with podcasting 2.0 because the protocols take care of the distribution, meaning that you don't have weird managers that get promoted into positions to tell other people what to believe and what to think by removing ideas from the podcasting podcatosphere. They also have this thing called Satoshis. Those are Bitcoin micropayments. And podcast apps like Podverse, Podcast Guru, Fountain App, and others allow the user, you, to send Bitcoin micropayments via the Albi wallet directly to podcasters like me. It's very easy. You just set up your wallet, get some Satoshis going, and send them their way. What this does is that it creates a record of um, engagement, and it creates a record of support for the podcasters of the world without having to rely on the likes of Google, which shut down their podcasting um, services recently, and all of that stuff. So check it out. I use Podverse. You can use whatever app you like or just go to MatthewPMBigelow.com, send us some traffic, or send a donation via PayPal at paypal.me forward slash JapanWUT. Die for the war.
2: For
0: the good, for the good, Die for the war, Die for the war. All right. So war is uh heating up. We have the supply chain wars going on in the world. Um I should probably include that. I have a separate thing for supply chains, and I really got interested in supply chains when COVID hit, uh, because Wuhan, I didn't know about Wuhan at all. Um Wuhan was like the like the major thing of the world, like a connection hub, um, that played a role for everything that we were doing. Um, now, like it was, what was it for? Telecommunications equipment, security equipment, chips, uh, automotive industry. Like the whole world, in one way or another, almost was passing through Wuhan, um, and then the the virus was released somehow. You make that up how you want to make it up, make it make sense to yourself. And the Chinese communist government just said, nope, it's shut down. And then it created a massive domino effect worldwide. And I was actually at the time before COVID really went crazy. I was so angry at all of the people in the world who were like, oh, we are responsible for all the things being sent to you. And it's like, that's why we put it all deep into China and authoritarian. Uh, you know, techno fascist state and we're just hoping for the best. They're nice. They're going to become like us someday, but no, they haven't. So I got really interested in in it then. And then the more that these chips were delayed and then China has its one belt, one road uh, international network of maritime routes, road routes and train routes that it wants to use to dominate global supply chains well ever since then I've been like, our supply chains are under attack and if we're the G7 nation group and we rely on the G7 and the economic stability with the. US Navy, well now we got a competitor here and I believe that the China's um, approach to unrestricted warfare, which is using any means necessary to um, to deal blows to your adversary, um, they're they're waging war via the supply chains. It just makes sense to me this way. Now, I've been following this now for four years, it seems, because it's been four years since COVID broke out, uh, and it, it continues along this way. Uh, but anyways, this supply chain news is, is kind of Kawasaki and three other engineering firms sign agreement for Australian liquefied hydrogen supply chain. So we're kind of trying to build up these decarbonized supply chains in the West and the G7 and Russia and China and Iran and into Africa and the Middle East and Saudi Arabia are trying to build their own new supply chains. And a lot of the coded messaging at Davos is like they talk about supply chains and supply chain resiliency and the new era of supply chains and decarbonization. So and offshore wind using power for all of this stuff. Meanwhile, these other countries are like, no, we're just going to use whatever we can and try to dominate whoever we can, and we're going gangbusters right now. But this um, this comes to us. Japan and NATO weigh a dedicated line uh, for sharing security information. I've talked about this before. NATO was planning to open an office in Tokyo, and everyone was like, what the hell are you talking about? NATO is a North Atlantic Treaty Organization, a military kind of group to Fend off the Soviets from 30 or 40 years ago. What what is this happening? So then Japan and NATO just said, why don't we work online together? So we're going to share a dedicated line for sharing security information, whatever that means. Next in the supply chain war, Red Sea attacks, already bigger issue for supply chain than pandemic, maritime advisory warns. You have the Houthis, backed by Iran, in alliance with China and Russia, disrupting international trade through the Suez Canal, punishing Israel for its uh, aggressions in the West Bank area. Um, And of course, my mind is just, okay, it's supply chain war. It's more of the same. Destabilize G7 supply chains and then stabilize their own supply chains and garner market share via stability that's gained from destabilizing other people. Uh, that just makes sense to me. And it's, it's weird how it's like now shipping navigation is like without the Suez canal. It's like, is it 1850 again? We have to go around the horn of Africa, the South Africa, the Cape of Africa, all that stuff. So there's that as well. Uh, but what I want to, the main thing for today, this is going to be, I'm not sure how much I can read into read this whole thing, but it's a very important document. And it's written by somebody that I've been following for quite a while. Uh, he, it's um, Robert Robert Spalding. He's a retired brigadier general, B two pilot, you know, uh, stealth stealth bomber pilot. And he was an attaché in in Beijing. It's like an official, an official spy, you know. And he studied Chinese language, and he's written books about China and China's corruption of uh, American institutions and all that. And he tried to convince a lot of the American elites in the White House and whatever to take China more seriously as a threat, and he was kind of ousted. And, and now he works in, um, in another aspect trying to um, warn people. But one of his warnings um, fell on my ears very seriously when I was teaching the AI class at the telecommunications company. And he, was in this document called a Secure 5G, was talking about how China, with its restricted internet, um, the, the great golden protector of Chinese internet, that's how the Chinese kind of refer to it. We refer to it as the, the, the great China firewall. They're able to basically suck in the world's data through Hong Kong and then use that data along with their own data that doesn't get shared with anybody to create vast amounts of AI technical solutions. And that doesn't get shared with anybody else. And then China is using those to create a massive surveillance state. And it's leaps, very much leap years ahead of what's going on in the rest of the world. And now China's at the point of expanding it. And he was talking about in this um, document called Secure 5G, AI warfare and and, and and AI information warfare. And I spread that document around to some of the people at the, the SoftBank company and and it, I'm not sure if it was taken seriously or not, but a few weeks later, um, this was like a big news at the time, Huawei was kicked out of, of Japan. They, they had to leave. And one of the, um, one, uh, sort of an imp- quote unquote important person there was like talking to me. He's like, yeah, I hope all of those, uh, Huawei engineers go work for another company and don't come to us. So I'm not saying that I was like this major hero and I'm like this guy who saved the Internet in Japan. But th- when this guy is talking, I take it seriously. And I think it's information that's worth sharing. So Mr. Robert Spaulding has written a new um, uh, document. And it's called A New Approach, Countering China's War Without Rules. Rob Spaulding, Brigadier General, Retired U.S. Air Force. Um, war without rules is Mr. Spalding's, uh, way of saying unrestricted warfare. I think war without rules makes more sense. Unrestricted warfare is still kind of, um, uh, abstract for most people. So in the military, in their military, uh, treatise, I'm reading from Robert Spalding now, unrestricted warfare, colonels, uh, Chao Ling and Wang shang articulated a new doctrine of warfare. Nothing is off limits or out of bounds. Their doctrine drew on centuries of Chinese strategic thinking and deviated radically from the Western doctrine of war, a deviation from the status quo and peace. Western democracies have not yet developed an effective counter to the Chinese Communist Party's approach. To do so, there are three concepts the West must embrace to advance a counter-doctrine that both embodies Western principles and effectively opposes what unrestricted warfare represents. We must shift from a rules-based order, that's, you know, in new world order, <laughs> um, uh, interest. We must, sorry, we must shift from a rule-based order to an interest-based order, from offensive to defensive, from finite order to infinite order. Failure to incorporate any of these will result in a world that tilts towards authoritarianism. The two colonels' words words accurately describe the thought foundation of such a world. This is from the uh, military colonels now from China. Acknowledge that the new principles of war are no longer using force to compel the enemy to submit to one's will, but rather are using all means including armed force and non-armed force, military and non-military, and lethal and non-lethal to compel the enemy to accept one's interests. This is more akin to annexation than conquests. That's my little uh, addition at the end. From a rules-based order to an interest-based order, academics and policy experts simultaneously cite and deride unrestricted warfare as a Chinese grand strategy. The words principles, however, clearly point to this as a doctrine document. According to Rand, quote, military doctrine is the fundamental set of principles that guides military forces as they pursue national security objectives. There are three concepts the West must embrace. Um, we, we define... This is back to Robert Spalding. We define doctrine as a guide for military forces. But the two PLA colonels, the People's Liberation Army colonels, developed a doctrine beyond the military norm and instead encompassed the entirety of civilization. These are big ideas. For centuries, Western militaries have set accepted parameters for warfare. Uh, But in unrestricted warfare, the colonels believe these accepted parameters aid Western militaries and continue their global dominance. Compliance with law of armed conflict sets new entrants to the battlefield at a disadvantage. I was referring to this a little bit earlier when I was talking about how Facebook helped me communicate with my friends and family after the Tohoku earthquake and the Fukushima nuclear accident and with the starlink now we have people in regional areas of japan that don't have to play catch up to the rest of the world they just use this new technology and are now at um despite being you know hit by a major earthquake they are now at uh, a technological advantage just like that so why would countries like iran and uh, china and myanmar whatever why would they try to develop um, navies, China's developing a Navy, but why would they try to outgun uh, previous, you know countries that already have massive caches of weapons such as the United States uh, when they can um, enter into new platforms in the info world uh, and use TikTok to destabilize people or use algorithms or use AI or psychographics to demoralize people and so on? That's going to be way more effective than going in with a gun and shooting somebody in the head. Um, Western militaries have adapted their warfighting fighting doctrine to be successful according to, you know, existing rules. Um, and the colonels might have viewed the contemporary battlefield along the lines of the famous test in Star Trek, the Kobayashi Maru said to be unwinnable. Um, you know, what do you do if, if, If an alien is coming at you and is about to stab you in the face or shoot you, do you, you know, do you knock the gun out of his hand or do you knock the knife out of his hand? Either option leaves you dead. Um, That's the Kobayashi Maru. To counter unrestricted warfare, the West must recognize that Chinese doctrine is no longer confined to accepted parameters but encompasses the whole of society. So we're not looking military to military. We're looking society to society. Where one, this is me now. where one society is attempting to weaponize the entirety of its society and leverage it against other societies that still think that their guys with guns are going to be the line of defense. When really, it's the teenagers with the TikTok apps that are now at the front lines of the info board. This more closely reflects politics, economics, finance, and the media. This also resembles Mao's conception of the protracted People's War, in which political indoctrination and the support of the people became the paramount objective versus military prowess. The idea embraced victory achieved through the wearing down of the enemy. Thus, the uh, doctrine of unrestricted warfare seeks to break all the established rules and to weaken from within— using the enemy's openness to corrupt their political system. This is similar to like how the British people used colonialism and then exported drugs to you know, conquer and divide and then come in and, and take everything over. Success encourages other nations to adopt rule-breaking to stay competitive. <laughs> the rule-makers will be defeated by their own adherents to the system they built. An effective counter-doctrine begins with the acknowledgement that the accepted rules... Do not apply to the CCP regime. Um, Either the West, from defense to offense, either the West adopts a doctrine that forsakes the rules or they accept defeat. This course of action destroys international order by withholding respect for the rules, which leads to mistrust of Western institutions. The past three years have certainly done that. You know, four years with COVID. I don't trust Western institutions at all. The woke stuff. The propaganda, the pharma influence in the media. How can you trust it? How can you trust it? This further erodes the concept of rule of law, civil liberty, free trade, and human rights. And by the way, a lot of the world copied China's model. <laughs> so, what is that? COVID 19 is unrestricted warfare. Look what it's done to our societies in the West or G7. These are the goals of the CCP and must be avoided so we don't become like them. Therefore, we must defend international order by preserving adherence to the rules of the road. We accomplish this by excluding those regimes who denounce and defile the rules. A defensive strategy is counter to the military approach established for the First Cold War. In that conflict, the threat of nuclear weapons forced a strategy of offense. Um, Okay, we we got to move on from there. Uh, let me just hold on a second here. I want to get to the three main points and I'll link to it. And uh, you know, you can check it out after that. All right. I'll leave it with this. This is from the subhead from finite to infinite. The West measures war by beginnings and endings, the latter of which defines clear winners and losers. The Western phasing concept of war fair envisions a conflict that happens in stages phase zero shape. Phase 1, deter. Phase 2, seize initiative. Phase 3, dominate. Phase 4, stabilize. And finally, Phase 5, enable civil authority. A geopolitical issue interrupts peacetime and leaders contemplate military force as a solution to the problem. Diplomacy or economic sanctions attempts fail. The nation then decides that the issue is so vital that force is required to coerce the other party to acquiesce. I, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking like, What? by bombing Iraq by Afghanistan Vietnam okay once conflict begins leaders task the military with creating conditions that force the enemy to submit the second World War established the objective of total submission, complete victory and then a return to peace where civilian authorities reestablish political control you can kind of that World War one and World War II may be good examples of uh, of this framework you, you know depending on your views on those two Wars, You know, you might disagree or agree. The Chinese concept of war is infinite. Strategy spans decades and generations adhere to the effort. Simon Sinek, a leadership expert and well-known author, discusses the difference between infinite and finite as applied to games. This is his quote. Finite games are played by known players. They have fixed rules, and there is an agreed-upon objective that, when reached, ends the game. Infinite games have infinite time horizons. And because there is no finish line, no practical end to the game, there is no such thing as winning an infinite game. In an infinite game, the primary objective is to keep playing to perpetuate the game. Back to Robert, Mr. Spalding, retired Brigadier general. The goal of the CCP is to survive, to keep playing. The Western and the unrestricted warfare concepts um, are at a completely at odds. Simply put, Two separate civilizations do not agree on one concept of reality. For the West to develop an effective counter, it must first come to terms with the war it is fighting. It is easier than it sounds. The United States and its allies succeeded in an infinite conflict, the Cold War. During the Cold War, each side sought to keep playing, yet avoided conflict because of the incredible destruction that a hot war with nuclear weapons would entail. The West, however, does not just seek survival, but survival according to a set of principles. The CCP des- defines its survival in terms that do not accept those principles. Document 9, an internal CCP document, states, quote, Promoting Western constitutional democracy, an attempt to undermine the current leadership in the socialism with Chinese characteristics style of governance. Pretty clear right there. Back to the document. The goal of the CCP is to remain in perpetual competition while systematically eroding the principles of Western constitutional democracy. This is accomplished by playing in an infinite game where the players, both known and unknown, collaborate to corrupt the system. By inviting China to become a full partner in the rules-based system, the United States and its allies ensured a slow erosion of that order as China does not adhere to the rules. Where deterrence based on an offensive power sufficed to erode the power of the Soviet Union, a similar doctrine will not prevail in Cold War II. The CCP studied the Cold War um, and noted the Soviet Union's fatal flaw. There was a complete denial of Soviet history, denial of Lenin, denial of Stalin, pursuit of historical nihilism. The great Soviet so- socialist nation fell to pieces. When faced with a Western system that is devoted to the CCP's destruction, adherence to Chinese political doctrine is required. China will drain the West of its technology, talent, and capital, but the West's ideology must be defeated. An effective counter-doctrine recognizes the CCP's goals and seeks to isolate its influence from those institutions which are tasked with upholding the principles of the rule-based order. An applicable example of potential doctrine enforcement denies China a seat on the UN Human Rights Council. China does not believe in the Western conception of human rights. Therefore, it should not be given a seat on the council. And it goes on from there. So more of like denial. Just deny, deny, deny. Get it out. (laughs) Get it out. So though I didn't read the whole thing. I thought that was a very interesting document. I like his writing. It's very clear, it's very concise, and it's very in line with a lot of military report style writing where you kind of know what the person's talking about and you agree and disagree with it, but it's clear what you're agreeing and disagreeing with as you read it. So that'll be linked up at matthewpmbigelow.com and um you know as as we roll into this year, um these issues are are going to be prominent. They're not going away, so you may as well know about them if you care about your future. And, uh, and you know, if you start talking about it, may, maybe it will sound less wacky in the long term and become a little bit more um, crystallized in the short term. So that's the war segment for today. Whoa, 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 whoa. Die for the war, everybody knows. die for the good, for the good. Die for the war, die for the war. All right, I'm gonna leave you here. Um, I'm gonna be playing that excerpt from the World Economic Forum meet between uh, Mr. Taro Kono, the Digital Minister of Japan. He's meeting with the Council of Foreign Relations at the Davos Summit with the head of like one of Japan's largest corporations and uh, this is going to be their um discussion of what they view the world as at the beginning of uh, 2024 here and i bid thee farewell so you found it um actually i'll play the outro at the end let's go to davos are you ready to go to davos i always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home
3: how do you see the state of the world and japan's place in it all right the
2: world is increasingly fragmented. Uh, there are a lot of uncertainty uh, over what's going to happen over Taiwan Strait, what's going to happen to Ukraine, what's happening in the uh, Middle East. And the role of Japan is to bridge the different uh, groups. Like Japan is in a very unique position vis-a-vis Middle East. Uh, We don't have the history of uh, colonialism in the Middle East. We are very uh, different uh, religion-wise. We don't have much of the Jewish-Muslim community in Japan. And we are very neutral, and when we say we can be an uh, honest broker, uh, I think people in the Arab world believe that. so Japan is in unique position to make bridge uh, among those states, or we have been working on like dFft data free flow with trust to connect. Uh, GDPR of Europe, which is very tough on privacy, and the Wild West of the United States, uh, they're not going to have a convergence, but our DFFT could uh, increase the interoperability of, uh, of the world. So I think that Japan's role for the future is to make bridge in uh, different places.
3: Yeah, with the economy accelerating movements toward uh, French and supply chain resilience, that I think is, 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 has big implications for Japan and its role. How do you see Japan uh, being involved in these trends? Well, um,
2: sometime, some years ago when we invited China to WTO, we thought China has a different political system. But if they become a good team player, everyone will get benefit. Unfortunately, it didn't work out that way. So President Obama talked to Prime Minister Abe, let's make a new decision-making body for Indo-Pacific. And that was supposed to be TPP. So we pay some political cost in Japan. But we decided the Prime Minister Abe took initiative to join TPP. And as we signed the TPP, unfortunately, President Trump left so we want U.S. to uh, come back and uh, create TPP what is supposed to be, and uh, so that'll be our first step. And uh, I guess Mr. Froman could uh, work on it in Washington. So um, hopefully, uh, after COVID, the Japan's economy is changing. Now we say goodbye to zero interest rate; it's ticking up. Uh, wages going up, so if Japan could regain the economic power, I think we have role to play.
3: Okay, uh, Mr. Yodo. Yes, sir. Uh, we've had a, the government view or a yes. government view. Um, <laughs> uh, how do you see the state of the world from the Sumitomo perspective? Well, yes.
4: Let me try to put my answer to your question this way. Looking at the the, the longer a period of time, I admit. I think uh, definitely this time uh, now, world itself is a t- turning point. Then, my career in the company for forty years in the past has created a long-term relationship in the region. Of course, under the, uh, the foreign policy set by our government and also uh, partner countries. Then, during this period, uh, Asia achieved tremendous, fantastic growth. And our relationship has changed from donor country to recipient country. But now, the partnerships among those Asian uh, community. Then, during this period, private sector in Japan have extended our efforts to create the trust and the long-term relationship, having our value chain uh, scattered into this uh, whole region and to create the growing together concept. I think we are in good shape having this uh, long-term relationship at this moment. Then now it is our task further to enhance this relationship so as to meet the global demand, and consensus reached in the previous uh, COP28, I think there are many things we can do together. So that's what uh, I look at the situation now.
3: Mm-hmm. When I think of the consequences of friend shoring and other changes that we're seeing, yeah. it would seem to suggest an intensification of the relationship of Japanese business with Uh, Many of your uh, partner countries in the region is that yeah in a sense. Yes,
4: but uh, on the other hand I think we have to be creative enough to redesign the whole uh, value chain of Mm. the industries in the region so as to make each value chain competitive enough and suitable for the new era Where we have carbon neutral uh, issue needs to be solved so we need to be very creative for this collaboration is the key. I think we have the foundation built up during the last uh, uh, history of the relationship. Mm. I think this is a very, very fundamentally important and strong uh, basis platform we have.
3: Yes, so it's the long-term business-to-business business and people-to-people yes. people relationships that you see That's as right. the key. Thank you. That's very helpful. Um, Ms. Deschamps... Uh, how do you see the world you're you don't represent a japanese company or the japanese government but you're very active rio Tinto in the region where japan is a major player how do you see the state of the world
5: absolutely and 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 i think the view is is for from for rio Tinto. we've been working in partnership with japan and japanese companies for 100 years mm. um so initially a european company then we Uh, globalized and went uh, uh, much more global. But actually the partnerships with Japan's and Japanese companies have been in all the the, the, the supply chains. So from selling, from investing, uh, having investors and Japanese investors, Mm -hmm. for having now a lot of partnerships in decarbonization uh, with customers. So there's a long history. So the view of the world is formed through that lens of this long history, long-term view. Uh, on our side, the, the view of the world is very much that we're living in a, in a very fragmented world and in the world of uh, metals and, and, and minerals. And, uh, and this fragmented world is, is actually, um, we're, we're very sensitive to it in all the countries where we operate. Um, we see the demand for uh, materials and, and minerals increasing uh, dramatically dramatically. Um, Because of the energy transitions and and what we need to do for the energy transition, Mm. Mm. and at the same time, when we look at it, the markets are very fragmented. So, the the, where the commodities are, where the, the the, the mining in the, uh, is in, in different countries from where uh, the processing is today, yes. very different from where the manufacturing is today, and where the consumers are, so the end uh, customer mm-hmm. are. Right. So we're having to adapt to this new reality of that fragmentation in that chain, um, and we see that this is the, the the way and the the place where the partnerships and the corporations with governments, private to public is essential yeah. as well to navigate this new reality. so we see that based on this long uh, history of a hundred years of working with Japan and Japanese companies, we can actually build on that trust, mm. work on the long term uh, resilience of uh, supply chain and 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 That'd looking be, at the world yeah. through that through that
3: lens. I suppose some people would look at Rio Tento and say, Information is less important to a metals and raw materials uh, company, but I would imagine that the fragmentation of the global digital landscape and information landscape is a problem. Do you find the work that Japan is doing to try to... Free up the flow of information. Is that an important thing for your business?
5: That's absolutely critical for our business as well. So, if we look at it from the lens of what we're trying to do from an ESG and the climate change, the decarbonization of the world, the data and the digitization is, is playing a key role uh, in that space, uh, all the way through uh, uh, working with governments and creating these uh, these strong relationships with the government. So, that work is essential, and we it, you know, data uh, builds also. Uh, um, transparency, uh, and goes into the trust as well. So I think we can really see the links there and uh, and the work that is being done in Japan and that space is, is very, very strong.
3: Nice. Well, Michael, you uh, you sit at a very interesting spot because the Council on Foreign Relations uh, is a kind of an inter...
0: All right, we're going to leave it there. Uh, the link to that, if you're interested, will be up at matthewpnbigelow.com Take her easy, everybody. Till next time, you found it. From the armpit From the arm of Asia. Asia, this has been the Japan What Podcast. Back in time for 2024. 2024. 2024. See you next time. ja mata ne.